it's helpful if I turn my mic on. Let's go uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, uh, go grab it real quick. I think it's personally okay if you need to run across the house to your bedroom or the bathroom or wherever you keep your Bible. Uh, it'd be weird if you kept it in the bathroom. But here, uh, I, I think it's okay to run and grab it real fast. We are going to put uh, our text for this morning up on your screen in just a little bit. Uh, but man, I think that God does something special as you're holding his word in your hands as it's being declared. Not that he can't use text on a screen. He obviously does. Uh, but he's kind of made us this tactile people, even as we're dealing with uh, transcendent things. And so if you have a Bible of your own, grab that real quick. If you don't have a copy of God's Word on your own, uh, man, I'd love to fix that this week. Uh, send me an email. Give me a phone call. Maybe we can send you one in the mail. I don't know. Uh, but we can fix that. we got a bunch of Bibles laid around here. And uh, hey, we would love for some people to read them. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, so we started a new series several weeks ago now, or a few weeks ago now, uh, that we're calling The Gospel is a Blank. The Gospel is a Blank. And the kind of idea behind that, the plan, is to uh, fill in that blank each week with a different word or phrase. Uh, the Gospel is this. The Gospel is a Blank. The Gospel is this. All right. And so uh, the premise that kind of drives, or the idea that kind of drives that whole uh, concept is that uh, I like to think that, that one of the best ways to describe or, or to give picture to what the gospel is, is to talk about it like it's a diamond, like a diamond. And we've all seen a diamond before. We know what they look like. Maybe you've got a fancy ring on your finger. Maybe you've only ever seen one on TV. Either way, we still all, all kind of understand what a diamond is for. It's meant to uh, be seen. It's meant to, to be marveled at and admired. The correct way to look at a diamond is, is to admire it, to take it in from every possible little angle and then kind of celebrate the good gift that it is. And the gospel, the gospel is kind of the same way. The facets of the gospel, all these different angles that we could look at it, uh, are, are all part of the same singular jewel. The facets aren't in competition with each other. They, they complement and serve each other. And so over the, the course of this series, we want to take this value gift from God, this gospel jewel, and deepen our all of him by holding it up and saying, have you seen the gospel from this angle? Talk about a sparkle, man. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Have you seen the gospel from this angle? Look how the light hits it just so. In week one, we, we talked about how the gospel is a promised reality. That, that God's not making this stuff up as he goes here. He's acting on a plan that has existed from before the foundation of the world, we would say. God's plan to save sinners is not some emergency 11th hour contingency. It is the eternal work of God rooted in God's good and infinite character and wisdom. The gospel is a promised reality. But then on Good Friday, we looked at how the, how the specifics of that plan are, are carried out. We talked about how the gospel is a narrative, a story, a real story, a story with real people in a real place at a real moment in history. Jesus lived sinlessly, and then he laid his own life down on the cross, only to be raised up again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. That's a real story of something that actually happened. And, and then we followed that up on Easter Sunday a couple weeks ago that we got, we got to marvel at how the gospel is also, at the very same time, a transaction. We, we spun the diamond and looked at it from that next facet. The gospel is a transaction that Jesus' death and resurrection actually 
accomplished something. It wasn't just a pretty little picture. It wasn't an example in some kind of way. It actually purchased something. It was a cosmic trade. Jesus took your sin, he took the penalty that's owed for your sin, and he paid it himself. And in return, he gives back to you his own perfect righteousness. Follower of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus on your behalf, you stand guiltless before the Father. Sin is completely atoned for, and you are clothed, wrapped in his righteousness. And then last week, we, we got to look at the gospel diamond from the angle of a family. We said that the, the gospel is a family identity, that, that yes, the, the debt of sin has been paid. That's good and right, and we're going to keep banging that drum here. Yes, the, the debt of sin has been paid. We are saved from God's wrath, but in the very same moment, we are also saved to God's family. We are saved to something, God's family. We are, are adopted as sons and daughters of the king of kings. And so we have complete complete access to the Father. We also have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a family. But that was last week. And the diamond can be spun again this morning. So what facet do we get to admire it from today? The gospel is a mission. A mission. So what do you normally think of when you think of a mission? For, for some, you probably think of something having to do with the military, right? Or uh, they go on missions, or at least that's what I'm told in the video games that I play, all right? All right? For others, you maybe think of some kind of religious-based charity, right? In Nashville, we've got a couple, all right? Uh, we got the Toll Street Mission, which is uh, kind of a food pantry, and then we have the Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission, which is a men's shelter and education center. And we have several people from our church, a long history here uh, of serving both of those mission outposts uh, throughout our church history. Right? And so uh, those are near and dear to our hearts. We call those missions. Still others, when they think of a mission, they think more of a, a statement of purpose, right? And just imagine in your head any college or organization, they have a, a mission statement, right? We do too. Lo uh, knowing God, loving others, and serving in the world. We have a mission statement. But the ties, what ties each of those things together, each of those definitions of a mission, what ties those things together is a calling that exists outside of themselves. A calling that exists outside of yourself. Go ahead and pick that random college or organization. Their, their mission is probably birthed out of their own sense of how the world ought to work. And so they structure themselves and organize themselves in order to chase after that reality, to chase after that thing that they want to see take place in the world. For the military, missions are, are something that's handed down by superior officers and the, the governments that they represent, right? For religious charities, it's a practical fleshing out of their faith, which is probably why most charities in our world is, have their original founding in Christian ideals. Because Jesus kind of had a lot to say about serving the poor. He, he brought that up every once in a while. But a mission is a mission 
because it's a higher calling to step out of what is normal and out of what comes natural to you and instead invest yourself for something better and more important, something bigger than you, something that will exist long after you are gone. And, and that leads us to our text for the morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So 2 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. And I'm sure you're probably smart enough to kind of put the, all the pieces together. Uh, but it's named 2 Corinthians because it's not the first letter that we have from him. Right? It's actually multiple letters to the Corinthian church. And there's actually a pretty strong theory uh, that there might be four letters. That, this, that 2 Corinthians might be the fourth of four letters. Um, we think that the first and the third letters probably got lost somewhere along the way. And so we have uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's probably really 2 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians. It's weird and it's complicated and I get it. All right? um, but all of this means that Paul has a long history with these folks. A long history. He has a deep connection to this church. He helped start this church. He led it for a while. And despite the physical distance that exists between them at the moment, he keeps pressing in. He keeps riding back to them with a pastor's heart to correct some major doctrinal issues that they struggle with, namely a self-aggrandizing pride. Pride. A haughtiness that that caused them to fall victim to a host of other issues like idolatry and, and sexual sin, a lack of concern for brothers and sisters in Christ, and a complete failure to live for anything that wasn't right in front of their face. That's what they were guilty of. The Corinthian church suffered from a pretty severe spiritual immaturity that, that still somehow managed to puff up its chest and strut around as if it were mature. And God love him, man. Paul, Paul would not let them continue in that. He refused to give up on them. And so in 2 Corinthians, it's, it's a letter that man, it really presses into this see beyond yourself theme. It really aims right between the eyes on that one. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that we, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So let's call a time out there. All right, so if you don't have much of a church background, you're probably just maybe a little bit lost right now. So what in the world is Paul talking about? He's talking about camping? What is that? He's, he's using the picture of a tent to talk about our physical bodies. He calls them a tent. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, that doesn't sound like a very pleasant analogy for a body. That doesn't sound like a stellar illustration for what I believe my body is. That's the point. That's the point. Tents are vulnerable. 
Tents are maybe fun for a night, a week or two, all those kind of things. I did a lot of camping when I was uh, a teenager. Man, those things are fun, but I don't want to live in a tent forever. It doesn't matter how fancy your tent is. It doesn't matter how much cash you dropped on that sucker. Tents are temporary. Temporary. What Paul is saying here is that that you and I, our our earthly bodies, and they have an expiration date. An expiration date. They're not designed to be permanent dwellings. They're not made for a forever people. We all kind of get this, right? Like we may fight against it. You start eating spinach and doing Pilates, whatever you want to do, right? Maybe you're into CrossFit. I don't care. We all kind of get that, man, man, our bodies, they're kind of breaking down here. If you don't believe me, after we're done here, just scroll through Facebook, right? Go look at everybody's senior pictures that they're posting right now in support of students who don't get a graduation ceremony this year. It, it doesn't take long as you're scrolling through those pictures to realize that, man, life has kind of beat some folks up, right? You're not as pretty as you used to be. And I'm in the same boat. 18-year-old Stephen was way better looking, and about 25 pounds uh, heavier, or lighter too. Paul says that we, that we all groan in these temporary bodies, longing for the future day to come when we'll get to put on an eternal one. That we long for the promised day when we'll trade in the old model for a new home. A permanent home. Not some ragtag tent no, a building made from God. And oh yeah, these new heavenly bodies also come with an infinite nearness to Jesus. Talk about bells and whistles, right? Is that what you put in your house search when, you, when you're looking to buy? Nearness to Jesus? And because of that reality, Paul says that it's okay, it really is okay to wish that that day would hurry up and get here. Hurry up and get here. And man, I get it. Me too. I I long for that day. There's a lot of stuff I kind of wish to see in life. Man, I got little kids. I want to see them grow up, all these kind of things. But also, I really long for that day. I want that day to get here kind of as soon as possible. It is good and right to groan and long for that day to get here quick. Those who love Jesus understand that idea. They really do. Because that'll be a really good day. A really good day. But in God's wisdom, that day isn't here yet. He's held that off for some reason. And as temporary as as these tents may be, well, our bodies aren't simply throwaways that don't matter. Look what he says next in verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please God. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so the Bible clearly teaches that we will each one day stand before a holy and all-knowing God and give an account for how we lived and used our bodies. 
And so while it is good and right to long for that future permanent day, we will all be held accountable for what we did with our temporary body that God saw fit to give us today. We're going to have to give an account for that. And there are dozens of applications that can and should be fleshed out of that reality. What we put in our bodies, how we present ourselves, what we do with our bodies sexually, and on and on and on we could go with it. We, We should go with it. But as important as all of those applications are, as important as all those applications are to us, that is not the application that the Apostle Paul wants to walk down. He goes a different route. Look at verse 11. Out of this give an account reality, he says this in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13, for, we have, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, so because we are on the clock here, and because we are all going to stand one day and give an account to our God, Paul says that we all ought to have a healthy fear of the Lord and get to work persuading others to follow Jesus. That's what he says. That we have neither the time nor the energy to commend ourselves. We've got a job to do. We're not trying to make a platform for us. We're working for another master. The love of Christ controls us. It spurs us into action, even to the point that we're beside ourselves if we need to. The rest of the world's going to think we're crazy. We're okay. And I mean, how could, how could we sit around and do nothing? Just not act. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, they seem like they, they got their life pretty much figured out. And, and besides, like, we, we both got this mountain of stuff going on. There's so many plates spinning. All right? And personally, just, just personally, I, I know we've all got our things, but personally, I think it would be really difficult and really hard to, to carve out uh, time in such a hectic schedule for something. Well, uh, I mean, let's be honest. That's a far away thing. We, it's not really a right now thing, right? And so, yeah, yes, spiritual things are important, but, but, but those are really future things. And I think it'd be best to, you know, just kind of punt the Jesus thing for now and kind of, we can come back to it when we are able to devote more time and attention to it. That's where I stand on that. But Paul says we're on the clock here. We're on the clock here. Time is running out. And regardless of the circumstances swirling on around us, and regardless of what we might think is right and good, we will each, you and me, stand before our king and give an account for what we did with the temporary lives he gave us. And I get it, man. Most, most, people don't, most people don't know what to do with the idea that, of the fear of the Lord that he's talking about here. For a lot of people, maybe you're one of them, that, that sounds antithetical to what you imagine God being in your mind. The fear of the Lord, what, what, what should we have to be afraid of? We talked last Sunday, right, about this family dynamic, this adoption, this family identity of God, right? There's a gigantic difference, a gigantic difference between 
my kids knowing that they have immediate and unfettered access to their daddy for anything they want and need, and my kids openly defying me because, I mean, what's dad going to do, right? World of difference between those two things. The Bible calls us to a healthy fear of the Lord. And, and yes, there is such a thing as bad fathers, and there's absolutely such a thing as harmful versions of fear, but it is intellectually unfair to take your sinful train wreck of a dad and look at God through that lens. It's backwards. We don't define God by our father's failures. We understand the Genesis 3 insufficiencies of our fathers through the lens of God's perfect character. That's how we navigate. And so our access to God does not replace a fear of the Lord. It redefines it and shifts its purpose. It moves it from a correct fear of his wrath to a fear of properly placed reverence and honor. A fear of never ever wanting to approach our father as if he's somehow on the same level as us. We've been called to a task by our Father. He is good and He is right. Oh, let not His children think that they're somehow smarter than Him or have a better, more efficient plan than Him. It is precisely our reconciled relationship with God that produces a healthy fear of Him. And through that healthy fear emerges a deep understanding of the urgency of our calling urgency of our calling. And that leads Paul to verse 16 here. He says this, from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, so Paul says that we don't have time to think of people in only fleshly ways here. This ain't some game. We used to think of Christ, Jesus, as, as a fleshly Messiah. We thought that he came to, as an earthly king to rule an earthly kingdom, but we were very, very wrong about that. He came for far more than that. Despite how awesome you and I think it would be to, to rule an earthly kingdom, earthly, temporary kingdoms are actually beneath King Jesus. He's a little bigger than them. Despite whatever you and I think would be the greatest thing for King Jesus to do, he thankfully ignored all of our dumb ideas and won a far greater victory for us. He came to make new creations out of broken ones. Broken ones. He came to reconcile the world to himself. He came to live sinlessly, die sacrificially, and rise again victoriously as the conquering king of a forever kingdom. The empire of Rome is small potatoes to what Jesus has going on. Jesus is dealing with eternal realities here. And as the conquering king, he has delegated a task within that kingdom to those whom he's already saved. He's given us, you and me if you know him, the ministry of reconciliation. The appointed 
and privileged responsibility of bringing those who are far from God into reconciliation through His grace. Church family, no, no matter what you're doing, no matter who you're talking to, you have never and you will never look into the eyes of a mere mortal. A mere mortal. There, there, there's always a person with an eternal reality on the other side of whatever conversation you're having. doesn't matter how mundane that conversation is. And so, regarding someone only by the flesh, it's costly. It's costly. Look what Paul says next, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so Paul calls us ambassadors here. In other words, we speak on behalf of Jesus, our King. And whether you've thought through it or not, there's, there's actually a couple of things about ambassadors that we all kind of instinctively know to be true uh, if we're talking about a good ambassador. One, they don't live in their home country. By definition, an ambassador is someone who has gone away from what is comfortable and away from what is familiar to live in a faraway land right, for the sake of being the voice of somewhere else. The second thing about ambassadors, good ambassadors, is that they represent and pursue the interests of their home country, not their host country. They're certainly a friend of their host country, but when, but when the ruler who sent them calls, they respond. They act accordingly. They, they stand and speak for the one who sent them, or else, or else they have no real business being an ambassador. They need to get out of there and put somebody else in their place. So the question emerges, how do we act as faithful ambassadors of King Jesus? Well, Paul actually models that for us in the very next sentence. Verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. And you may be thinking, okay, good for Paul. He brought up the evangelism thing. But remember who Paul is writing this letter to. He's not, this is not some evangelistic letter to a group of non-believers. This is a letter to a church, the Corinthian church. He's talking to a people that at least on a surface level, he assumes to be Christian. He's, he's still, even in this letter, looking though for ways to bring the gospel to bear. He's still bringing it up. He's still calling people to be reconciled to Jesus if they haven't yet been reconciled to Jesus. Most of them know this stuff. And still he calls. Paul is always looking for the eternal concern. Always. He doesn't regard people according to the flesh anymore. He's smarter than that. He's learned his lesson. He knows better. He has a holy understanding that he's on the clock right now and he's going to give an account for his actions. And so he's working diligently today to win as many people as possible today. Follower of Jesus, the gospel, the life-changing call to spend yourself sharing an infinitely valuable prize with others. The gospel is a mission. 
a mission. It's a calling that exists outside of yourself, handed down to you by your king. It's a calling to step out of what is normal and step out of what it comes natural and is comfortable to you and instead invest yourself for something better and more important, something infinitely bigger than you, something that has eternal consequences coursing through every ounce of it. We have a privileged an appointed responsibility of helping Jesus reconcile the world to himself. There is no other calling that could be higher in your life. There are good things to spend your life on. There is no greater calling. There are good things to do. There are good things to pursue. There is no greater purpose. And so spend the diamond this week and marvel at the unparalleled beauty of God's gospel jewel. Love, lose yourself. Lose yourself in in the life he would have for you as you love, as the love of Christ controls you. To understand and behold the gospel correctly is to actually see others with eternal eyes and then get to work imploring them to be reconciled to God. So, so what, do we, what, do you do, what do we do with this, right? How do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're watching this and you're already a follower of Jesus, your response is pretty clear, right? Like, I don't even have to spell it out. You, be, be, you begin planning right now, in this moment, to <laughs> how you're going to live as an ambassador. Like, what's your next step? What's your second step? What's your third step? Like, actually put the plan in place. What is it going to take for you to start acting like an ambassador right now in this moment? How are you going to show through both word and action that you represent a better, eternal kingdom? Yeah, things are weird right now. It's kind of hard to have spiritual conversations when, like, with people under normal circumstances. It's a little different when you're stuck in your house. I, I get that. I get that. But no matter what season we're in, We regard no one according to the flesh. We're not dealing with just earthly realities here. We're on the clock. And besides that, like, I think if you'll press in, I think you'll find that spiritual conversations are actually easiest when all of the comforts and safety precautions that we have in our world has been yanked away from us. When they've been ripped out of our hands, people are more eager to have spiritual conversations because they don't have anything else to hide behind. Jesus offers a hope that is intentionally foreign from this broken world we're in. He promises a better day, and I'm willing to bet there are some folks in your life that desperately need to know about that, who long for that. Who needs to hear the gospel from your lips this week? Oh, but I don't really have a, a relationship with them yet. Okay, so hurry up and fix that. We're on the clock here. You need some tools? Give me a call. We'll figure out something. But I don't really know what to say. First of all, that's not actually true. If you understand enough about the gospel to believe the gospel, you understand enough about the gospel to repeat the gospel. Start with your story and then then finish with Jesus being the hero who saved you out of that junk. You don't need any more help than that, but that doesn't mean we can't help you. Now's as good a time as any to announce what we're doing Wednesday night. We're going to have a Zoom meeting where we teach you the three circles uh, evangelism training. So seriously, if I don't know how is the only excuse, we can fix that Wednesday night. We can do something about that this week. 
Who needs to hear the gospel from your lips this week? I'm, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time for you to actually put action and respond to God's word. If you're watching this this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm, I'm glad you're hanging around, for real. Uh, I, I, I understand that sitting around through a sermon where the church talks about you being a target for evangelism is kind of a weird thing. I get that. Um, here's the deal, though. I think God's working in you. And I would echo the words of Paul, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Listen, uh, you were made for an eternal reality. By default, you are separated from God because of your sin. It deserves his wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, he loves you with a great love. He did what was necessary to reconcile you to himself. Jesus put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living, and he died on the cross to make payment for your sin, and then he rose from the grave because his righteousness was enough to spare. And Jesus now calls on you this morning to be reconciled to him through repentance and faith. Repentance is the Bible's word for turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus. Faith is the Bible's word for placing your hope and your trust in Jesus and his work on your behalf alone. And you can do that this morning. You can be reconciled to God by God. Normally, I'd stand down front here and call people to come forward as we sing. We can't do that right now. Uh, But listen, God never needed that moment. He can use that moment. It's a tool, but he doesn't need that moment. He can work on your heart right now, wherever you are, whatever device you're watching this from. He doesn't need me. He's bigger than that. And he wants to give you himself, not some mediator, him, him. And you can respond to him this morning wherever you are. But listen, that doesn't mean that we can't talk. That doesn't mean we can't talk. Give me a call today. I'll schedule a meeting with you. We'll sit six feet apart. I don't care. Jump in the, the pastor's Q&A uh, small group in a little while. and Let's talk about this stuff. I'd love to help you walk through what that re- response of repentance and faith looks like. We can talk about it. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's use this moment to respond to God's word in whatever way he's calling us to right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for 2 Corinthians 5. Thank you for a mission that's bigger than us in every way. A mission that is worthy of any cost that might bear weight on us. That's worthy of anything we might step away from to pursue a better calling. That works itself into and through every other lesser calling in our lives. God, we live in a broken world. Our bodies bear testimony to that. We long for the day when you will make all things new. That will be a good day. I'm excited for that day. I can't wait for that day, but that day isn't here yet. You haven't given us that yet, and so there's work to be done. Help us walk faithfully. Help us walk faithfully in every season. Oh, but help us walk faithfully in this season especially. What a time to live. What an opportunity for your kingdom. 
You've yanked away from so many people the things that we find our security in, the things that we find our hope in, the things that we chase after as idols. You've just ripped them away from us in a thousand different directions. Would you help your church proclaim the gospel well? We be faithful to point people to a better day and a better king and even better bodies. God, I know that fear, at least in my own heart and life, often overwhelms my sense of duty. But what would I have to be fearful of? (laughs) You are a much better offer than anything this world has ever ponied up. I'd rather have you. We seem to be living in a time where other people might actually understand that. So put gospel words on my lips this week. I'm probably not going to have very many conversations with people outside of my family. But give me the opportunity. You're big enough to orchestrate those things. Help me walk faithfully. Father, for those who are watching right now who don't know you yet, would you save people this morning? You're a big enough God to do that right now. We, We believe that. Would you awaken hearts to know you? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Show yourself off as the good God. Who, yes, holds us accountable for our sin, but also saves us by your great love. Would you help us respond well? In Jesus' name we pray.